My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Amen. There aren't that many good jokes about John the Baptist. I looked, but I did find one. So, this Oxford archaeologist was known for traveling through the Holy Lands looking for artifacts. And one day he was in the bazaar and and the man waved him down and stopped in and found himself sitting in the back with a rug dealer shop and the sipping tea. And the guy reaches under the table and he pulls out a covered item and he says, I think this will interest you. And he covers it up and it's a skull. And he says, this is the skull of John the Baptist. And we know that because John the Baptist was beheaded. And the Oxford archaeologist looks at him and he says, I'm very confused. He said, I was over at the uh, a dealer yesterday and he had the head of John the Baptist and it was much bigger than the one you have. Without missing a beat, the rug dealer said, oh, well, this is his head when he was a teenager. <laughs> now, John the Baptist is not a funny guy. He came with a message, and it wasn't a pleasant message. The message was, get ready. We talked about this last week. Get ready. The king is coming, and you are all in trouble. And today's story, last week we read from Matthew. Today we read from John. Today, John the Baptist gives us a little bit more information. He says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, it's funny, Vicki and I were talking about lamb the other day. We were at our favorite diner, and I had a gyro. And she said, do you like those? And I said, well, sure, but I'd rather have a souvlaki. And she gave me that blank stare. What's, and she said, well, what's the difference? I said, well, a gyro, and I don't know if you know this, a gyro, they do the meat on that big spit. They, they grind it, they put it on the spit, and then they shave it off, whereas a souvlaki is real lamb on a shish kebab. And she looks at me and she says, I don't think I've ever had lamb. Lamb is not something we eat regularly. We eat lots of chicken, we eat lots of beef, we eat lots of salmon, think about it, but rarely do we go out for lamb. But in Jesus' day, lamb was very common. There were shepherds and there were lambs. And when, and when John the Baptist says, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, it instantly resonated with his Jewish audience. It resonated in two ways. Let's start with the first. In the Old Testament, you remember that the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt. And Moses came with Aaron and said, set my people free. And Pharaoh said no, and and there were blood and flies and frogs and boils and darkness and locusts. And every time Pharaoh would say, okay, you can go, and then he would change his mind. And God said to Moses, there's only going to be one more plague, and this is it. And all the people of Israel had to take a lamb, a firstborn lamb, without blemish. It had to be completely white. It had to be a lamb, not a grown-up sheep, a lamb. Innocent and pure. And they were to kill it, save the blood, eat the lamb, and put the blood, you remember, on the lintel, on the door of the house, so that the angel of death would do what? There you go. Pass over their house. 
from the beginning of their identity as a people, God tied their salvation into the image of a lamb. Later on, when Moses, through the direction of God, sets up the tabernacle and later the temple with God's worship, once a year at Yom Kippur, they had to bring a lamb. A lamb without blemish. A completely pure and young lamb. And they would sacrifice it for the sins of the people. And I don't know if you've read the book of Exodus lately, but the priest would dip into the blood and he would spray the people in the congregation with the blood for the forgiveness of their sins. Then he would take his hands and lay it on a second animal. We don't often talk about the second animal. It was a goat. And he would lay his hands on the goat. And the goat would be sent out into the wilderness to carry the sins of the people away. And yes, it was called the scapegoat. So when John the Baptist says, Lamb of God, everybody's ears prick up because they know what that means. It is a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. But it's also a symbol of God's majesty. I, I wish we sang Handel's Messiah all year round for two reasons. One, I, I love to sing Handel's Messiah, and it usually pays pretty well. But there are some wonderful choruses, and I don't know if you know, but all of Handel's Messiah is taken from Scripture, and a lot of it is from Isaiah, from the prophets. And there's this wonderful chorus at the end of Handel's Messiah. After three hours of singing, and I got to tell you, the choir is awfully quiet, tired after three hours of singing. But there's this wonderful piece called Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And the men in the middle have this wonderful part. It goes, Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Right out of the scripture from today. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne. Jesus is a fulcrum for time. And John says this. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. He is the Lamb of God who saves us from our sins and will sit on the throne at the end of time. So if you're taking notes, the first M in this passage is majesty. John declares for us the majesty of Jesus. Now the next thing he says is Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He declares God's mercy. The story is told of a soldier who was in line with the other soldiers and the commanding officer was on a tear. And he realized about halfway through the tear that the soldier he was yelling at wasn't really the soldier he should be yelling at. In fact, he humiliated the soldier, but he had crossed that line and there was no way to get back. We've all been there at least once. <laughs> Open mouth and insert foot. So that he ignored it when he heard the soldier under his breath say, you will regret this for the rest of your life. And the officer thought nothing of it until several days later in the midst of a battle, he was wounded and separated from his men. And he was sure beyond sure that this was the end for him and he was going to die. And through the smoke and the fog and the noise of battle, he saw a soldier coming towards him. And it was the soldier that he had berated the other day. 
And as the soldier dressed his room and prepared to put him over his shoulder and carry him back, he said, you said I would regret humiliating you for the rest of my life. What are you doing? And the soldier looked at him and he said, I'm going to save you and you will regret humiliating me for the rest of your life. He said, this is God's revenge. God saves us so that we regret our sin for the rest of our life. There's a, it's funny, Diana, my daughter, is in the Netherlands right now and she might actually be visiting Copenhagen and she'll be seeing a statue there that was made by the artist Bertel Thorvaldsen. It's still in the church today and he designed it in clay and it has the arms upstretched, sorry, the arms upstretched and Jesus' face is looking to heaven like this. And he finished the statue in clay and then he left it overnight without thinking that Copenhagen is a sea town and the mist and the wind came in and the clay did not harden the way that he wanted it to. In fact, it began to sag. And when he came back the next morning, true story, Jesus' head was no longer upturned, it was down, and his arms, instead of being in the air, were like this. First he was angry and frustrated, and then he realized that that was probably a truer picture of Jesus, and he left it that way. It's a famous statue, and it's entitled, Come Unto Me. The majesty of Jesus, the Lamb of God on the throne, became the sacrifice of Jesus who came to die for us. Which brings us to the third part of John's statement, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't just come to save the Jews or the 12 disciples or the Romans. He came to save the entire world. And, and I'm sorry, but the church sometimes forgets our mission. It's like the lady who bought a parrot. She went down and she said, I want a parrot that can talk. And the guy said, here is the smartest parrot we have. They're guaranteed to talk within a week if you've taken them home. She bought the parrot in the cage and a book on how to train the dad parrot. She went home. Week, 10 days later, she came back and she said, that, that parrot is not talking. And the man says, well, do you have a mirror for the cage? You know, sometimes parrots need to see another parrot and... <coughs> Get a mirror. So she bought a mirror. Three days later, she came back. She said, that parrot is not talking. He says, well, do you have a ladder? You've all seen that in the bird cage, a little ladder, and the bird goes up and down. Maybe, maybe he needs some exercise. So she buys a ladder, takes it back. Three days later, she comes back. She says, I want my money back. The parrot is not talking. He says, hold it. Let's try one more thing. Do you have a bell? She says, what? He says, yeah, goes in the cage and the parrot can ring the bell with his little beak. Okay, she says, so she buys a bell. Two days later, she comes back with a shoebox. The parrot is dead. And she says to the man, I want my money back. And he says, did the parrot ever say anything? And she says, yes. Just before he died, he said, don't they sell any food at that store? <laughs> <laughs> take away the sins of the whole world we get so busy 
doing the things that we think we're supposed to be doing, we forget to do the things that God has called us to do. There is a hungry world looking for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're having soup kitchens, which is not a bad thing. And we're having breakfasts and dinners and parties and picnics and hayrides. And the parrots are starving. Don't they sell any food at that store? Now, one of my favorite authors is Stephen Covey, and we use his uh, seven habits with the kids at school. And one of the things he wrote in his book, Seven Habits for the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is begin with the end in mind. He says, I want you to picture your funeral, which catches everybody off guard. He said, I want you to picture the four people that are going to speak at your funeral, a family member, a coworker, somebody from your house of worship, and somebody from an organization with which you volunteer. And I want you to imagine what they're going to say about you if you were to die right now. And he said, if you're not happy with what they're going to say about you, guess what? You have the rest of your life to change what they say about you. Well, it's funny. He must have stolen that idea from Martin Luther King because in one of his last sermons... He said this, and I'm not going to embellish, I'm going to read right from the quote. Two months before his assassination, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke to his congregation at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta about his death in what would oddly enough become his eulogy. Every now and then I think about my own death. And I think about my own funeral, Dr. King told his congregation. If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. I'd like someone to mention the day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to be able to say that I did try to visit those in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Dr. King concluded with these words. I won't have any money left behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. There was a girl in one of my first youth groups named Sarah. And I, I tell you about Sarah, because Sarah was one of those people that had friends everywhere. We would go on a field trip or a cantu trip, and somebody would shout, there's Sarah, and come over. And, and at the end of every summer, we gave out awards. Now, I'm going to date myself, but we used uh, film canisters. Remember the little 35-millimeter film canisters? You would open it up, we would put a green fuzzball in there, put googly eyes on it, and we called it the Oscars. As in Oscar the Grouch from... We gave out Oscars. 
And one year, I gave Julia the Andrew Award. I love the fact that the story of Andrew is tacked on to the end of this. Because we know Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was to save the whole world. But how did he do that? Because we have to go and bring those to meet Jesus. And Andrew, we're told, went and met Peter and said, I found him, come with me. So Sarah was gifted at bringing people to youth group. No matter what event it was, she could always get to her people. And there was this constant flow of new people to church to hear the gospel because of Sarah. And at the end of the year, when we were giving the awards, I decided that we would make one up just for Sarah called the Andrew Award. And for the four years she was in high school youth group, Sarah got that award and she was proud of that award because it was her gift, her call to bring people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. She wasn't a great preacher, she wasn't a great storyteller, but she was a great friend who brought people to hear the word. People need to know God's mercy. People need to know God's majesty. And people, now is the time to move our life into missions. We're going to read together the responsive reading from Matthew 5 and Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> Amen.